0: couple of years ago, uh, maybe if you're sitting at the back, if the, my voice starts to drop a little and you can't hear me uh, raise your raise your hand a couple of years ago Gail and I were uh, teaching here over the same period of time and it was a gorgeous June long golden sunny days and warm and so it seemed such a lovely idea on the day of the summer solstice to bring people outside and to sit under the trees and we sat here in the warm evening light etc so things change Mm -hmm. and uh, weather isn't quite the same but it's at least dry which it hasn't been previously and so we thought just the opportunity to be outdoors There's something in the natural movement of life around. Nothing is static in nature. Movement of leaves, sounds of birds. And um, there's something in that certain kind of... The elements that we've been emphasising this week, naturalness of experience the fluidity of experience, something about a kind of an exposure to the the openness and the spaciousness and the naturalness, the fluidity of being outside, of being among nature that's very supportive and of course that's how the Buddha's meditation instructions always begin every time Buddha gives meditation instructions in the text first thing he says find a suitable place for meditation like at the foot of a tree so here we are Buddha would approve (coughs) this morning in the instructions i spoke about three facets of our practice. This basic practice of attending to experience, and yet different aspects of that depending on what's happening. The aspect of just collecting, grounding, steadying the attention, and embodying the intention, moment by moment. And the aspect of exploring whatever aspect of experience starts to stand out to us, to pull on the intention. Whatever aspect of experience, usually where we can sense that we're creating some friction with life, that there's some reactivity or that there's some view, that there's some uh, pull or push with what's happening that can be allowed, explored, investigated. And then that third aspect of allowing a kind of an opening up of an attention, a sense of uh, the whole of what's happening and the way in which this natural fluidity of life is holding us, carrying us, expressing itself through us. That this too, this organism, just like trees and sky and birds, etc., reflects these same qualities so having explored those or spoken a little about those three aspects this morning in terms of meditation I thought I'd speak about the same three aspects this evening but in a kind of broader view of them as pertains to as to the whole of the rest of life really the the kind of Yeah, everything that isn't formal meditation, formality of sitting meditation, or the formality of walking meditation, etc., or the formality of the way we pay attention in precise guided movement and meditation. Sense of embodied attention is very much, very kind of fundamental. To any meditative practice in a way like I think I quoted Ajahn Chah the other day as saying never let your mind leave your body and yet it's so fundamental it's so ordinary we could say that we easily overlook the significance of that or we're kind of eager to get onto something that seems a bit more spiritual or a bit more interesting than uh, breath and body and yet i would certainly say from my own practice that the 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 most significant most transformative aspect of practice that we can basically develop with a bit of sincerity with a bit of consistency we can really develop is that capacity to have our sense of moment by moment experience happening from here to be on the inside of is that a strange way to put it maybe but to to have a feeling of congruence with the unfolding moment we all of us and sometimes people say to me oh, I've, I've really tried meditation but it's not for me i'm not a natural meditator <laughs> <laughs> like like as if there are some natural meditators. Right? We all of us have like we were speaking the other day about our cultural education, we all of us have developed a strong capacity and it's a useful capacity to abstractify. Right? To be able to conceive in abstract terms, to be able to imagine, to be able to project forward into the future, to be able to reflect backwards on the past, etc. And the natural process of evolving those capacities, developing those capacities, is such that we end up getting a little overly uh, seduced by them. Or we come to, to conceive, not very consciously necessarily, that that, that is the way our mind works. And it is the way, it's as far as most people get with the way their mind works. And yet it's a kind of, it's, it's a useful and particularly human way to use our mind. And it's also rather, it's a partial capacity. So with some consistency, with some sincerity, we can train the muscle of attention. So that embodied presence... Being here where life is happening becomes increasingly just normal, just where attention lands and stays. And of course, abstractions still can go on perfectly well. The capacity to imagine and remember and plan, etc. is going on very well. And sometimes, even, that planning or remembering or imagining might take us away, might seduce us. And yet, when we realize that that being seduced has happened, it seems like the exception rather than the norm. It seems like, oh yeah, that funny thing I did where I just got overly involved in some imaginal thing. Sometimes, at the beginning of practice, that can seem hard to imagine. And the reason it seems hard to imagine is because we feel like we have to put a lot of effort into being present. Like, as if being present involved holding my attention here. Right? Like, breath, breathing in, I made it. <laughs> breathing out, I made it. Breathing oh yeah, but... Uh, oh, damn, I got all <laughs> i haul my attention back to the present moment. Now if that's what we mean by embodied presence, for, all the time, forget it. <laughs> it would seem exhausting, and, I, and I, I just can't sustain that degree of effort, so I give up after some time, and when I give up, what happens? The giving up is like a... Uh, going off again, which seems to provide some relief. And yet increasingly, as we pay attention... We notice that the going off, which we're constantly waking up to right, in meditation again and again, or waking up to the fact that that going off isn't actually just some kind of effortless uh, flowing along. But implicit in that being caught up in something is a certain tension pattern. The investment of uh, thinking about, the investment of, uh, of basically being being pulled and pushed around by that. And that being present isn't a question of dragging our attention back to here, to body, to breath. It's rather much more increasingly a question of recognising the tension inherent in being caught up and, uh, and... dropping it, relaxing it, softening it, unhooking from it. And in that unhooking... Here we are. It doesn't require effort to be present. Just now, if I just ask you, are are you present right now? Of course you are. Of course you are. Can you feel yourself sitting here? Of course you can. Do you need to do anything to know that you're sitting here? No. At least... I don't think so correct me if I'm wrong it's, it's really really obvious that you're sitting here so maybe this being present constantly present continuously present steadily present present in a way that it starts to become a normal, reposeful uh, ordinary home for us is maybe much nearer much more within the realms of possibility than we imagine and if that's the case maybe it's really helpful for us to take a look at the relationship we have to being present if it's one that seems like an effortful relationship remember i said on the first evening meditation isn't an act of will it's not something we can do. It's rather the fruit of the undoing of all the demands and defences and distractions and daydreams and etc, etc. So oh, we might come to an environment like this right, for a practice intensive an embodied awareness intensive where all day long the, the emphasis is on that where the situation is supportive where teachings are there to support us where the goodness of each other's practice serves as a container of support etc and we find no doubt over these days as well as moments of going off here and there we also find moments of feeling present Uh, Moments of a a kind of heightened intimacy with experience. Moments of feeling, oh, that's what it is to be inside the breath. Oh, that's that thing that I always heard that I didn't, knowing the breath in the breath. Sounds like a strange uh, construction linguistically. But, oh, this is knowing the breath inside by being inside the breath. Oh, this is embodied presence. I can kind of feel the cellular tingle of just being here. And you might describe it a little differently than that, but no doubt you everybody has had some taste of that sense of presence. And wonder that are wonderful supportive and yet that can also be problematic in terms of this encouragement to have that as, a, as an aspect of, uh, of our practice in all moments because this is a rarefied kind of environment and so the, the feeling of presence somebody wrote me a note the other day saying can you please talk more about the feeling of presence And there is no feeling of presence. Presence we present to whatever feelings here might be present to being cold. Then we say, what's the feeling of presence? It's cold. (laughs) We might be present to feeling nervous. What's the feeling of presence? Sort of jittery. Presence itself is feeling less. It's the capacity to know what we're knowing. To recognize what's being recognized. To feel what's being felt. To have the light of awareness be shone on whatever's appearing. But in an environment like this, something's happening with the sensitivity, right? Because there's less sensory input. The the not speaking to each other lets the nervous system quieten down, etc., so it's like one is more sensor sensorially so what sensorially yeah, we'll take it <laughs> <laughs> one is more sensorially sensitive, so then because there's this practice of presence happening, the sense we we, we find ourselves having moments of being present to this state of sensory sensitivity, right. And we tend to mistake that for presence. So then when I speak about our being present in every moment, it's like, oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Or we go back to our life and we're saying, right, I really want to be present in every moment. And what I expect is some kind of tingle of sensitivity. <laughs> like I had in retreat. No chance. <laughs> no chance. It's not that presence is more available in retreat and less available on the train, you can know you're sitting on a train every bit as easily as you can know you're sitting here. But the heightened sensitivity, is that's born of the conditions. So when you're on the train and you email thing on your phone's going crazy because it's been turned off for five days and the baby across the carriage is crying and there's an announcement that the train's going to be delayed because it's England. And <laughs> <laughs> all right. well, You know, you're a sensitive organism, right? You're responding to all of that. And then you're going to try, oh yeah, but let me be present. Yes, please do be present, but don't expect... It's going to be all light and tingly. And, uh, and, yeah. Very important to separate out the quality of the experience, which is constantly changing. It's constantly changing each moment within a retreat. And of course, it's definitely changing from within a set of conditions like this to the next set of conditions, whatever they are. To separate out the quality of experience from the the way we can incline towards experience. The way in which we can listen to experience. The way in which we can embody experience. Be here for experience. In other words, the way we can know what we're knowing, moment by moment. So... Over the next twenty-four hours, you've got a lot of opportunity to experiment with that, to to discern between the feeling, the sensitivity, the quality of experience, and between the uh, the inclination, the the attitude, the way of attending. The first isn't sustainable. And the second is always available. And then this... um, We also looked this morning at this sense of Having established a sense of intimacy with, contact, contactfulness, uh, embodied presence, once we, we know what we're knowing, we know where we are, we're uh, alive to uh, the touch of the moment, then the capacity we have to actually to allow and explore whatever stands out. Of course, that also may be happening in a, in a more engaged or in a busier moment, that al- also may be happening with a different degree of subtlety than it might be on retreat. Similarly, in, if we're in the middle of conversation with somebody, it's going to have a different quality or feel to it, that exploration, than in the solitude of meditation. So we talk about being present in every moment. There again easily we think that means every moment should feel like meditation. No, meditation feels like meditation. Walking feels like walking. Having an argument feels like having an argument. But when we're having that argument, well, where's our attention go? Easily the attention goes mostly to the the, the object of the argument. How wrong the, the object of the argument is, for example, how, or how right I am and how wrong you are. Or one has a moment of doubt and just the same thing, just switches around, oh, how wrong I am, how right they are. Right? But same thing, one's obsessed with where the argument is pointing to. One's caught up in the story about, in the object. But what's actually standing out in the experience is the argumentativeness prickliness of it the indignation of it the etc etc and we're invited to explore that that inclination of mind can still be there the subtlety might not be there but the inclination of mind to be more interested how did we language it this morning Uh, i can't remember in response to a question this morning we spoke about being more interested in the state that's there Argumentative state than in the thoughts that the state is producing. The Buddha used these two words to, to, um, to indicate two different ways of uh, exploring experience, vitaka and vichara. And the way of the image he gives, he says vitaka is like the, the finger. Pointing to the experience, oh, this is what's happening. Right. Oh, argumentative. Or oh, uh, afraid. Or oh, confused. Or oh, whatever it might be. Right. Do the recognizing the state. And then vichara, he says, is like the palm of the hand, handling the experience. Right. It's one thing if you see something. You see, someone asked me today, what's this? So you point to it in order, I'm pointing to this. If I point to, oh yes, it's this. Pointing to it helps us to recognize it, but then handling it. Oh, it's like this. Weight, texture, temperature, feel. It's a very helpful image, I think, for that sense of exploring, opening to, inquiring into experience. Knowing the state I'm in and then being willing to handle it. Being willing to handle it. Oh. Handling it means being patient with it, getting to know it, being open to the kinds of associations, images, memories that may go along with it. The places, you know, it's very. when you have some reactive feeling. It's not the first time you've had that feeling. I bet it's decades since you had a feeling for the first time. (laughs) Right? So there's a lot to be known in the vichara, in the handling that feeling, and the willingness to see oh, where do I know this from? This confusion this anxiety this feeling that I'm definitely right in the argument or whatever and that patience like I say a willingness to just to, to get to know it and if you don't get to know it very well this time don't worry it won't be long before the same things come back because that too, right? The kind of things that we get caught up in don't tend to just come around every decade or so. The kind of things we get caught up in seem to come around with alarming regularity. Right. So you've got another chance, and another chance, and another chance to handle it. And... I was trying to think just before this evening about how to speak about that handling in a way to underline its importance. I know for myself, the first few years of my practice, I was really focused on insight in a kind of... uh, You know, I wanted earth-shattering insights. And I wanted them now. (laughs) Come on, it's all about the here and now, this practice, right? I want insight now. And actually, that kind of... And I was because of that, I was uh, d- doing a lot of very intensive uh, meditation retreats, and uh, I had this line that the Buddha uses to practice as if your hair is on fire." <laughs> <laughs> Why that image comes up, I don 't know, but I liked it at the time, so I felt like how we were practicing <laughs> as if my hair was on fire with a lot of youthful zeal and <laughs> that's why the monks have no hair left right? (laughs) (laughs) and that kind of intensity can really um, can bear a lot of fruits in terms of insight and uh, it can lead to very concentrated states, it can lead to very still states, it can lead to very expansive states, it can lead to very um, strong experiences of some of the things we've been speaking about the the natural unfolding of things the sense of self and world disappearing and or reconfiguring in the way we were speaking about last night etc but it doesn't tend really to lead to the kinds of insights that have a great deal of uh, transformative power on the more psychologically ingrained material the stuff that was, we got reinforced to us growing up, the emotional uh, wounds or confusions, the feelings of neglect or abandonment or uh, mis- being misunderstood, the shame or the guilt or the, uh, whatever may have come out of being punished, etc., uh, etc. Et that stuff needs vichara needs handling, needs being patient with, needs being gentle with, needs being rather forgiving to ourselves again and again of the fact that, oh, there it is again. And the forgiveness and the closeness to it and the willingness to feel its quality, to handle it, to explore it, start to develop both understanding of it and a rather a kind of tenderness towards our own inner life. And, you know, retreats are... are um, anything can happen, kind of. But sometimes what happens on retreat, sometimes long forgotten bits of our life may may appear rather suddenly and dramatically sometimes we may be dragging along something from our recent past with us and keep dragging it along all through the retreat sometimes we come to retreat and we find oh everything drops away and there's a lot of uh quietitude and the stuff of my life has receded even sometimes to the point where I think, oh, my, oh, that's stuff of my life that I used to trouble so much about. <laughs> and it's not until we get back on the train that we're reminded that there's the stuff of our life. And people have said this week, you know, oh, well, last time I came on retreat, it was, you know, such and such. But this time, it's completely different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. last time it was so easy and it was so pleasant and it was so deep but this time oh I'm restless and I'm agitated etc or last time oh, I found it so difficult to be here I found the silence difficult but this time I've just dropped into it yeah you can't predict ah, mind and yet in our daily life we're being exposed more uh, you know, frequently and regularly and pretty reliably to the stuff that needs some vichara. Right? We're being exposed daily to the reactivity that arises with family and colleagues and lovers and uh, etc. We're being exposed to the kinds of uh, friction that we generate around our work or around our social lives, or around our uh, quest for meaning, or etc., etc. In other words, we're being exposed to just exactly the stuff that wants care and attention. We're being exposed to just exactly the stuff that needs some handling. Some allowing, some exploring some making room for, some being tender with. So when the stuff of life comes up, it's important to just to be aware of the tendency to see it as some kind of obstacle to practice. As if practice is something that was available back in that lovely place at Gaia House where none of this stuff of life came in. If that was true... You'd have to stay here forever to get anywhere with your practice. Maybe that wouldn't be so bad. And then this other aspect we pointed to this morning is a kind of expansive awareness. And in terms of uh, the wider context of our life, you now that's available to us. Not just available to us, it's, it's a more common experience than we, than we might know or think or recognize. Some, for some, walking, like we've been walking here both formally, in walking meditation, also some of you taking the chance to walk informally some of us walking is an activity that kind of naturally uh, the rhythm of walking the enjoyment of nature naturally kind of conduces to a certain expansiveness might be helpful just to reflect for yourself what what activities or situations in life naturally conduce to a sense of expansiveness for you naturally conduce to a sense of Allowing it to happen by itself, whatever the it is. For some it's uh, sport, for some it may be art, for some it may be listening to music, etc. In the realms of life where we have a certain, not just that we take pleasure in, but where there's a certain, we sort of trust that realm of life. We trust that activity. We trust ourselves in that environment. So on the one hand, helpful to make use of those activities or situations where there's a certain natural um, affinity for that. And on the other hand, to see where regardless of activity or situation, to see where it's possible to just... Open up to a wider view than just me. If we don't incline our attention in that wider view, then the default mode tends to be to kind of close in on ourselves in terms of me, my preoccupations, my needs, and my wishes, and my um, my my work and my you know, just my my stuff all the time. And the more time and energy goes into me and my, the more we reinforce the sense of me and my. The more me and my seems like it's the most important thing. The more me and my takes up all the space. The more we can incline our attention in this kind of inclusive, it's not to leave me behind right, and go off so that we just bump into a lamppost but that sense of expanding that what I call me which as we've been exploring tends to be rather mysterious edgeless, centreless but what I call me this sensitive organism has a whole lot going on to it that which is seen that which is heard that which is felt that which is imagined it kind of extends beyond this fresh flesh shaped boundary in all kinds of ways consciousness is by its very nature expansive inclusive wide open just the field just look at the field of your vision right now even though you may be focusing on me leave me alone a little bit right? just let the field of vision be w- wide and inclusive without focusing on any of the details just to notice how wide it is, it's so wide that you can't actually see the edges right you think they're over there somewhere but when you, when you go look for them oh no, there's no, there isn't the edge isn't there oh now it's over there, hold on <laughs> hold on there. seamless edgeless there's no upper limit to your vision there's no lower limit to your vision we assume a limit we say well i can't i can't see down there so the course is a limit but you can't the significant thing is you can't see the edge you can't hear the edge you can't feel the edge Our assumptions come in, our common sense comes in and tells us there's there's an edge. But we're not interested in common sense, we're interested in an uncommon sense, a rare, a precious sense called intimacy, expansive intimacy. The more we incline our attention in this way of expansive intimacy, the more All of this fills out our experience, this life, this contact, this seeing, this feeling, this reflecting, this noticing, this fluidity. The more our intimacy with what's happening is expansive, the less we feel the burden of the preoccupations of me and my. It doesn't mean that me and my is discluded. Sometimes me and my is what needs some attention. We won't lose the capacity in any way to recognize it when there's hunger. We need food. When there's fatigue, we need sleep. But so much of the preoccupations with I, me, and my isn't really about what this organism needs. It's about a whole, way more convoluted and neurotic set of stuff than that. So, plenty of opportunities. Like we've been speaking about the train, and I was the years that I lived in, in India, and a lot of time in the, in the Indian Himalayas, lots of bus journeys. And on the one hand, those of you who've been on Indian bus journeys know that it's a contemplation of the fragility of life, right? <laughs> so on the one hand, we lurching around mountain corners, boulders crashing across the road. I was actually in several bus crashes while I was there as well. So you're breathing in, breathing out, uh, (laughs) contemplating uh, impermanence. (laughs) (laughs) And at the same time, out the window, there's these kind of fabulous vistas, wide open spaces, the smell of cedar forests and the kind of majesty of mountains and uh, kind of... interesting, you know. Just to notice the difference. What happens if I focus just on my, there's nothing I can do about the way the drive, bus is driving. I mean, I can get off, but you know, I'm not, I can't go and ask the driver, "Excuse me." <laughs> <laughs> so, what I can either focus on uh, me and my and my anxiety, etc., or a sense of wow, the kind of mysterious majesty of life in which this little speck, somehow, getting very neurotic about what's happening here, just doesn't seem so important. And so it might be going on the train home tomorrow which is not quite as death defying maybe <laughs> but how easily one can be sitting in that train or whatever the situation may be in one's wider life how, how easily one can be sitting in any given situation and by default just finding oneself getting lost in the loop of me and my just by habit and all the while There's this vast world outside the train window or outside wherever it might be. And even if we're in a windowless room, there's still the space around. The kind of, the gestalt view, the whole view, the inclusive view of what's happening here right now. It's an incredible resource to incline towards the inclusive view, the expansive view, rather than the neurotic view, the self-reinforcing view. And so... These, these reflections, and trying to tie together the sense of these three aspects in the formal practice which we were speaking about this morning, and to, to show a kind of equivalence or availability in all moments, all activities, all situations, a capacity to be here. here in the immediacy of things rather than lost in abstraction. The capacity to handle experience. To be tender and patient with it so that it can actually yield understanding. And the capacity to open up to a life in which my neuroses really aren't the central feature. To open up in a way that, oh, Allows for a for a allows the heart to come forward. Open up the view in a way that allows us to delight in the beautiful. To open up the view in a in such a way that allows us to respond to the painful. To open up to a view that allows us to really have room for the comings and goings, the this is and that, the up. And downs. And there is no moment, there is no situation, there is no activity that can't benefit from these ways of inclining our attention. So it's for the sake of freedom that I offer these reflections. It's for the sake of freedom that I invite you to incline in that direction. It's for the sake of freedom that uh, that I offer this vision of uh, the possibility of really transforming the way we experience life and understand life and respond to life. May it be so for each of you and all of us and everyone else. Okay. So. It's has good kind of still out here now. It doesn't seem so cold to me. Maybe just because I've been. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking we would go back in for the last set, but now that everything's out here and cushions are here. My sense is maybe we come and sit back outside again. Does that? I see some nodding. Maybe some of you are inwardly <laughs> shaking. But uh, if you if you do feel cold, there are some shawls. So some time for walking in the evening light, and then uh, if you could. Who was it? Yeah, if you could uh, ring the bell just before nine, five to nine, and then we'll have a last short sit here under the Bodhi tree of Guy House together. Thank you.